Taylor does so beautifully is that he can un- upend something that's intentionally made to be a negative, like snakeskin cowboy, which is obviously that its intention is to put out there a negative message, and he just turns it on its on its side and turns it into something that's so beautiful about human connection and human relationships, and that's a beautiful metaphor about you know how we can all go through life. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, directors Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman chronicle a live concert reframing years of U.S. history in Taylor Mack's 24-decade history of popular music. Screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, the film captures the drag star's exuberant, blatantly gay 24-hour musical performance, featuring skilled performers, creative costumes, and the American myth recounted through sailors' ditties, disco, and sugary pop numbers. Epstein and Friedman's other directorial credits include the documentary features Linda Ronstadt, The Sound of My Voice, The United States of Pride, The Celluloid Closet, The Times of Harvey Milk, and Common Threads, Stories from the Quilt, as well as the features Howl and Lovelace. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Epstein and Friedman, along with performer Taylor Mack, spoke with director Andy Timoner about the film. Listen on for their conversation. First of all, congratulations on an incredible feat, two incredible feats. Taylor, your incredible feat of making this unbelievable performance happen. Uh, this it's history lesson, very important history lesson for us. And, uh, and, and Rob and Jeff to make, to making something that is so, uh, so informative, so watchable. So like there's a, it's a, uh, once a performance film, it's a concert film, but it's also, again, it's, it's a, it's a really important document of his, of our time and of what it is to perform. Are you working on the concept? Tell me about, First off, the editing process. How did you create this? Like, what was the process of taking this 24-hour show and turning it into that? Well, we started with, you know, we started by looking at all the footage. Obviously, we had 500 hours of footage, but that includes, multi, you know, multicam um, of uh, the 24-hour performance um, and some other performance footage that was shot in uh, LA at the Ace Theater. We watched, so we watched it all. Um, We watched it once through with Taylor and just talked about every, um, every song, every moment, every, every uh, uh, bit of patter that, that Taylor does between the songs and just got a sense of what we felt was really important and what we felt, you know, we might be able to put aside. Um, and we got it, you know, we, we, we really worked at it as we would any other documentary. You know, we have, we had a ton of footage and we had to figure out what the, what the storylines were that we wanted to, uh, follow what the themes were. Um, and then, 
finding the moments and the songs that would support those themes. So we had, you know, we had a, I mean, there was obviously the history of the United States. That was kind of the overall, the overall narrative. Um, And then at the same time, there's the history, there's a story of this 24 hour marathon performance. And then within that, there were these um, B stories of Taylor's um, artistic biography and Taylor's um, coming out and coming of age as a gay man in the 80s and 90s. Um, So we just had to find ways of weaving these together and finding the material that would support those. There was, you know, a a whittling process. The first assembly was, I think, uh, three and a half hours, and we were uh, suicidal at that point, as most filmmakers are when you look at your first assembly. Um, And that lasted about a minute. And then we got down to, I don't know, Brian, our editors here. Um, I think the next hit was Brian Johnson. Uh, what was the next cut? I think two two forty five, and then it started to be begin to feel manageable, and then I think we got down to two fifteen, and that was the cut we started showing around. Uh, we did a, a screening for trusted friends, as as we all do, um, and that was invaluable just to get feedback about where what was working, what wasn't working. The takeaway was then at that point ten minutes too long. It ended up being about. 30 minutes too long at that point, but yeah, it's a process, uh, the wittingly process. And Taylor, you, you knew that you needed to, to, to document this show. This was a, a, it must be a culmination of a lot of years of work and writing. Um, can you tell us the process of coming to the revelation of, of making this show and, um, and getting Ellen to shoot it? Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, I, I, I got the idea for the, for the show. And then I, um, started working at this place in New York called Joe's pub, um, where I would start doing 90 minute shows of each decade. And I'd, I'd call every performance a workshop and, you know, we did maybe 150 odd uh, performances and um but as we were doing that we were kind of building the community for the show so um the people that were in the audience at the 24-hour show had been with us over the course of six years watching various sections of um of the show and and when i say helping us build it i I really mean like how do you rehearse blindfolding an entire audience in the course of a song if you don't have an audience so you know they really did help us kind of develop the work by just being there and um and we wouldn't really rehearse we would do uh a 90 minute rehearsal just to make sure the charts were all right for a 90 minute show and then we would just go out and do it but we would do it again and again and again and again and i would kind of figure out what i wanted to do from performing it so um uh and then turning it into a film there was always an idea to film it but when you're making a uh, a 24 hour performance on a shoestring budget with um uh, 200 people it's it's that's a lot to take on uh, um you don't want to also 
take on <laughs> producing a film. So, um, so we kind of were half-assing it the whole time in terms of the film aspect of it, just because we all our resources going to the show. Um, but we were lucky enough that Margaret Bodie, uh, this producer that my stage producer knew, um, she got us hooked up with Ellen Curris, and Ellen Curris um, worked her magic to get some in-kind cameras. And the two weeks before the show, she came and she and she did kind of a cinema verite filming of as much of it as we could get in that kind of um, crazed situation. And I also didn't want a lot of cameras because I was only doing the 24-hour show once. I didn't want it to be dominated by cameras getting in the way of everything. Um, so we just, it was just five cameras, but then we organized a much um, more intensive shoot when we came to Los Angeles. So that's, that's how we did it. And at that point I'd won a fancy award that helped pay for it all. So the genius award, the MacArthur foundation funded, hopefully funded some of this screening and, yes. and then <laughs> HBO came in. With, and then you guys came in, and then HBO. You yeah, well, HBO. we came in uh, April of 2020. We got a call from Taylor and the producers that they were interested in doing something on the 24-hour show. Um, Jeffrey and I were longtime fans of Taylor's, having first seen him perform in San Francisco, his uh, show Lily's Revenge, uh, in 2011. So I've been following his career ever since then. And knew about the 24 hour show had read about it read wesley morris's over the top review about how it changed his life uh, but we hadn't seen it but we were excited to get this call that they had this material and were interested in doing something with it so uh then we partnered and spent a year developing the project we spent uh, about two months looking at all the material and then cutting a 50 minute sampler, which was kind of a, a proof of concept that we could do what Jeffrey and I were, were pitching uh, that we would wanted to do uh, a representation of the show so that, that in uh, cinematic format, we could do create um, an experience that would be a representation of what the show was for, for the audience and the performers. So this 50 minute sampler was uh, kind of a greatest hits, but also just gave a sense that we could in this kind of distilled form, give a sense of the historic sweep of the show, uh, the production values, Taylor's vision. Uh, and then we went out and pitched with that 50 minute sampler and ultimately HBO came on board as our partners. Awesome. And, and, and Jeffrey and you have been partners since even before 1997 with Celluloid Closet, which uh, deserves Common Threads own. was our first film together. Okay, but Celluloid yeah. Closet was 1997, right? 95. Oh my gosh. Okay. My research. Um, and then obviously you've made The Life and Times of Harvey Milk, the fantastic, unbelievable scripted film, and then collaborate on and off in documentaries together, or you always co-direct? Since Common Threads, we've been co-directing. In documentary. Wow. Okay. And feature. Documentary and, and fiction. Okay. Wow. Awesome. So this uh, collaboration, was it something where you went over what are, you know, what are the most important moments to tailor or did you guys just kind of go into the material? I mean, what stood out and what came to kind of crest in the editing room 
for you. I mean, the the Yankee Doodle beginning that is just so fantastic, and but obviously there's so much. Well, um, just general starting point. Taylor said to us, "This is your film, and I trust you to figure out what the film should be." And he gave us great notes um, all throughout. Uh, but we started the three of us just had a retreat together and looked at the show and we just went through the show uh, from start to finish uh, and talked about every number. And in that first pass, that first conversation, we eliminated maybe 20% of the numbers just right off the bat. We, all, we agreed, you know, we have to lose something. We can lo lose this, this 20%. And then, and then for us, it was, you know, Taylor created this incredible, curated this incredible work of art. And then it became our task to essentially do a, a delicate curation of, of Taylor's curation. And that was, you know, that was our task. That was the job. And that was just iterative. And we also yeah. decided we, we needed to, we needed to shoot some new footage because even with all that 500 hours, um, we wanted to, we wanted to give context and, um, you know, so, so the, some of the thought that went into the making of the show. So that is that when is, are those, those like that, those gorgeous interviews? That yeah. Shot? Well, yeah. the whole photo shoot. So we got and the photo shoot. Okay. We felt that, that, that the, the film needed another layer i mean taylor the show travels down all these lanes and has all these layers and we felt the film needed its own layer mm -hmm. which is more um the behind the scenes opportunity to really talk with all these virtuosos who are taylor's collaborators and we heard from taylor's producers that they were considering doing a photo shoot of machine dazzles costumes for the show for a book about machines work and we thought, oh, this would be a great opportunity for us to develop that part of the story. So we used the photo shoot to develop, uh, you know, the the essentially the story of the costumes and whatever history we were able to get in those conversations as Taylor's being outfitted by machine and Anastasia's wonderful makeup. So that all happened legitimately as they were preparing for these photo shoot, but we used it as an opportunity to marry it to. It, it's so. seamless. I mean, you would never know that I would never know that I felt like it was all kind of, yes, you were stepping out of course into interviews, but I felt like machine dazzle. And I, I felt like the photo shoot was very much part of the, the backstage experience, you know? And I think that, re that really works well. Um, so, Machine all that dazzle. Was shot in 2022. How does right? how does maximalism play into all this? Tell us about <laughs> maximalism. Um, um <laughs> you know, we come from this queer aesthetic, downtown New York queer aesthetic, where um, it's so hard to pay your rent. We don't, you know, you don't have money for an outfit, so he's just like, "What do I have?" Well, I have this trash bag, and I have some part of this um, shirt, and some part of that shirt, and some duct tape, and so you just would kind of like make it. 
Um, and that's the kind of drag I would do before I met machine. And then when I met machine, machine was doing that just with sparkly things. And so, um, we immediately bonded. And, um, what I soon came to realize is that machine was making kind of wearable sculpture and, um, and a lot of the maximalism comes from this. Um, I, I think it comes from a rebellion against the homogenous, um, that the I and a little bit of a rebellion against capitalism where everything is supposed to be reduced so that you can sell it. Um, and so the idea is just, no, we're going to throw it all in. You're not, you're not allowed to tell me I'm only one thing. I'm going to be many things, all, all of it. So that's why the aesthetic of the drag was always, you would look at it and see grotesquery and beauty, but also um, masculine and feminine. And just, and I would often take, um, and I think machine kind of works this way too, a little subconsciously, but I would, I would make a list when I was making my outfits, which was how do I feel about a particular subject? And then I make these long lists and they say, okay, let me put all of those items into the look. So it was a little bit about trying to express the range of, um, of a theme or an idea. And it's, it's also why the show is so long. I, I do want to just say though, that it was super important to me that the film be its own art piece. Um, it's, it's a documentary and it's documenting, documenting, it's a document of our show, but it, but I, I really wanted to make sure that, um, uh, that it had its own vision and its own story to tell. And so that's why I said, this is your film because um, I didn't want to control that. I wanted, I asked them to be part of this because they're legendary uh, in my heart. And, um, and I don't think the stage show would have existed if it weren't for their films. So it was, um, I learned how community gathers uh and responds to something um they were my only access to to anything queer uh growing up and so um so i i feel like so much of their vision for how they've made their films influenced my artistry and so it, it felt like a dialogue and already and um even though they didn't know that and so i uh i just um, it was important to me that they be able to continue that work. And the, so for me, it's just exciting to be part of their canon. Um, it's thrilling. Oh, that's beautiful. And I think for and, us, it, it also felt like we were doing very similar things. I think the you know, the, the things that we've been interested in and that we've been trying, the stories we've been trying, we've been telling over the years and the stories that Taylor tells in his show just felt very in sync with each other. Um, so, um, you know, as Taylor talks about being influenced by our films, but we've been inspired by Taylor's work. So it's just been a very beautiful collaboration for us. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what Taylor's doing is very important culturally. Um, what he's, uh, what he has to say about the state of the world and the way in which he does it so artfully and with such uh, generosity of spirit, um, what well, you all just witnessed it. Uh, and we felt excited about the possibility of bringing that to a wider audience. And that felt like something we could contribute. Um, and we're really, you know, really happy that that's happening now on HBO Max. 
Yeah, I'm glad that you I'm glad you said that, Taylor, because it is true. It's you two really have told queer history, modern history, and been really the 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 scribes of, of it in film for decades, literally decades. And so it's not surprising, Taylor, that you grew up watching and being nurtured by these films and being strengthened by this work. Um tell me about the AIDS era and how that was growing up for you. And obviously we know you were, you guys were involved as filmmakers as well during that time, documenting it. Um, But it's, it's really poignant in the show with the, with the losing of a musician in every decade. Tell me about how that idea came to you and what that ended up becoming as a discussion between all of you. Um. Well, I think I uh, when I went to that AIDS walk, I um, I think you know, fourteen had been in the back of my brain for um, quite some time, and then I I made this show um, unconsciously trying to do a metaphorical representation of that, and it was called The Lily's Revenge, and it was five hours long, and it had thirty six people in it, and um, that's what they saw. Uh, but when I finished that show, I I thought. Oh, that's what I was doing. I was trying to do some reenactment of that that event I went to when I was fourteen, and I experienced all those queer people for the first time on mass and um and so then i so I thought, let me try to do it consciously now um once that project was done, so that's when I got the idea for the twenty four hour show um and uh I mean I guess what's what I find quite uh, profound about this is there's this moment in the film where I talk about uh, mentors and um, wanting your mentors and they're not there and then but here they are so I find it um, the process of making the film has been very healing uh, and very satisfying that's interesting so you felt alone in that way, and now you feel oh, like yeah. you have found your tribe. I mean, it's in- been a process of finding the tribe, finding all the musicians, gathering everybody together, sure. the audiences. You know, I've really bonded with so many audience members over so many years, and then and now it just continues. So it's been a, a really, um, it, it it it's what we do in the film where we take something that's that beats us up and we turn it around and. Um, we do it with the songs, you know, we, it's like, it's like even the opening number song, the gimme shelter in this, in the movie, uh, is, you know, you, you're in the grocery store and you hear gimme shelter and somebody's singing rape, murder, you know, and he's like, it's just a shot away. And, you know, it's like threatening you while you're shopping for broccoli. And, um, and then you're like, Oh, but now every time I hear that song, I think of Marsha P. Johnson and a shot glass. And so it's like, it's turns it around and, um, we do it with born to run with a macho posturing. And it's like, no, what, who is really born to run in this country, you know? And then we do it with the snake skin cowboy and we do it with the Yankee doodle dandy. And we, you know, so it's all these things that are part of our almost daily lives um, to just take the pain of it and just turn it around. And, and instead of trying to correct the history, we're, we're making new history um, with the items and with each other. So that's what I find very, very moving. That's beautiful. And I was, that was my next question was how did this influence and impact each one of you as an artist moving forward? Like, 
you know, every film, sort of every work, every, you know, every performance that you do, I'm sure, or at least every play that you put up or musical that you put up changes you in some way, you know, but this one, I mean, this is devastating watching you at the end there, you know, it's just, it was very moving. Um, how do you, like, how does that change you moving forward? And I guess maybe you answered it now in that you've transformed and created new history and, and uplifted and turned, you know, violence into something that we can be proud of and we can embrace some, you know, uh, found we've caught, you've carved a place for us in the history. Well, but you, what about you personally and each one of you? I, I was just going to just off of that, just say what Taylor does so beautifully is that he can un upend something that's intentionally made to be a negative like snakeskin cowboy, which is obviously that its intention is to put out there a negative message and he just turns it on its, on its, on its side and turns it into something that's so beautiful about human connection and human, um, yeah. And human relationships. And that's a beautiful metaphor about, you know, how we can all go through life, looking how we can turn those things around. And, um, that's one takeaway for me. How about you, Jeffrey? Are you are you going to just do music films from now on? Or? <laughs> um, I, I enjoy doing music films. We, you edited we, this film with Brian, yeah? Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we worked on it. We worked on it together. Um, you know, for me, the w one of the things that's so special about Taylor's work is that he's 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 able to to address really uncomfortable issues and 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 real you know real problems in the world uh and do it in a way that doesn't make you feel bad doesn't make you feel like you're being lectured and harangued and i mean it just somehow it's, it's there's this community building that's happening at the same time um and it's making you understand uncomfortable realities in a way that's somehow nourishing and it's there's something beautifully paradoxical about that uh, and inspiring about that so i just feel honored to be able to translate that into a movie beautiful did you want to say something uh yeah i was just going to share a, a comment that we got today from um a viewer linda ronstadt um, our last film, the last film Jeffrey and I did was a music film about Linda Ronstadt, and she is a big Taylor Mac. Thank you. Um, uh, Linda, when we told her what we were up to, we were doing this one about Taylor Mac, and she just wrote back, you know, I'm a huge Taylor Mac fan. I stalk him on YouTube. So she watched the film last night when it launched on HBO and sent us, you know, a really beautiful email but one phrase that she used that i will uh, that will always stick with me in relationship to taylor's work in this film she called it um a profound piece about americana that was such a great yeah quote. that is great yeah it centers I, I mean that the 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 work and the film it says america is a queer and you know i i <laughs> i'll go deeper into that analogy but it's uh, or metaphor but it's uh 
it's that, you know, we're kicked out of our home or run away from home. We find it, we have to find a chosen family. We gentrify every place we go. And we are, America is a queer. And, um, and so all of this anti-drag and anti-trans stuff that's coming at us right now, it's, um, it's internalized homophobia. <laughs> it's internalized queer phobia. It's internalized transphobia because America at large is a queer. So that's what the film does. That's what the show does is it centers a different kind of um, perspective than what we're, than what we're normally given. Um, and uh, I, 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 that's just exciting to me. It's also got to be really exciting given that you've performed this, this one time, this 24 hour show, but you've done, uh, you told me many, many performances of parts of it, parts of it, parts of it. And now to have it on HBO where everyone can see it and watch it. And all of these ideas of yours that are so fertile and important and powerful are going to be out there. That must be a wonderful feeling for you. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought the most that it would ever happen. I, w- I was in a movie, it's called Crimson Force. It was in 2004, 2004 on the Sci-Fi channel. You know, <laughs> and I flew to Bulgaria and I played a Martian named Zoo. And it's literally the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and when it came out, a million people watched it. And I thought, oh God, for the rest of my life, more people will have seen the worst thing I've ever been part of. Uh-huh than in the best of my work. And now it's not true anymore. So you call, you call the, um, the audience, the sacrificial, is it what, let me see the sac, Oh, the sacrifice of the ritual, <laughs> a radical fairy realness ritual sacrifice. Yes. They struggle. Do they, they are celebrated. They have to eat. They have to hug. They have to kiss. They have to fight with an inflatable penis. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, tell me about the role of the audience always in your work and in any work, because for us filmmakers, it's very different. You know, we present our films to an audience, but you are interacting and they're very much a part of it. I mean, what does it do for you? What is it? How does it feed you in the, in the performance as well? Um, and, uh, they're my, I, I was trained with Meisner, so it's a moment to moment. A technique, a acting technique, and so I think of the audience as my Meisner partner, and um, so you know anywhere between ten to thirty percent of any show is has a lot of improv in it. So it, there's a liveness to the shows, um, and I was worried about that uh, by turning it into a film that we would take something ephemeral and we'd print it, and then it would you know somehow it would lose that element. But I've actually been quite surprised by the process because what I've the ultimate goal with an audience is to get them to dig deeper into their considerations. And, um, and what I've found watching the film over and over and over again is that my considerations change every single time. And, um, so it's happening. So it's the, so it's been a real eye opener that film is actually an ephemeral art too because considerations are ephemeral. And so the, the more you hang out with it, if you make a film like what they make, um, you want to hang out with it again and again and again. And, and it changes with every viewing. And um, so I, I think, I don't know if that answered your question about the audience, but I just, I still feel like that's happening in a way. Uh, it, it is surreal to watch yourself on screen and have the muscle memory of a moment 
and be like, oh yeah, oh now I'll say this and then not be able to because <laughs> I'm actually not up there right now. So that's a little strange, but um, but it's it's fun. I think that for us the the filmmaking challenge with all that was to present the you know the monumental uh, experience of the marathon aspect of the performance from both the perspective of the audience experience of the audience and and tailor but not fatigue our the film audience because it's a very different you know requirement for for the film going audience than what's going on in the theater but we want to give a sense of what was going on in the theater so i think that was you know that's the the tension that we had to work with in editing the film in the longer cut was there more more of that or how did you like what is what was the ultimate formula you kind of came up with? It felt like it had a it felt we like were, it really did more have a we were longer in decades. You know, we were, you know, we spent a long time in the 70s and 80s, and that was one of the notes that we got from our filmmaker friends screening. Too long in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, when we lost a whole decade that we all loved, the uh, the beginning of the 20th century is all set in a Jewish tenement. Um, and Taylor singing in Yiddish. Um uh that was a hard one to lose, but we, you know, it just wasn't serving the film narrative at that point. That must, that, yeah, I'm dying to see that. What, what else are we missing? <laughs> that would, that's, that sounds incredible. Actually, it's 22 hours that you're missing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when we do the installation, the museum installation version, like Christian Marclay's the clock, you'll get to see it. Yeah. How did the audience hold up though, Taylor? Like, did they actually, were they okay in the morning? Yeah, like, I they... mean, they, they, they were okay. Yeah. They, it, it actually grew. That was the crazy thing. Cause so we asked them all to sign a little um, non-contractual agreement that they would stay for the whole thing because there was only 650 seats and, and a lot of people wanted to be there for the whole experience. So if people came, part of the art was to be there with them for 24 hours. And so if people came and left and came and left and that it wasn't really make, we were making this art piece with them. Um, and so they, they did, they, um, I think, you know, we, we only lost maybe 5%, but we actually ended up, people started coming in towards the end. So we had about 800 people at the very end of the, that were squished into the sides that had By come. then, what time was it again? It was, it was morning. noon to noon. Right. So, so it was morning. People were like yeah, getting up and yeah. heading over there. <laughs> they were like, well, let's see what's, what's going on at that theater. And they like snuck in and, you know, plus everyone in the show stayed. So it was, you know, we had 200 people in the show. So that was probably most of those 800 were people that were in the show that stayed, you know, um, but, and we had scheduled everybody with breaks and sleeping things. But what ended up happening is um, most people kind of stayed up in solidarity. So it was, uh, it was very moving. The audience became emotionally deranged in terms of their availability. So um, they just had no defenses. They would laugh hysterically at any little thing and then they would cry at any little thing. You know, it was it was um, it was a very unique experience. One thing I I really love that you crafted into the film and that you you spoke about was just how you were alone, and it really was symbolic of a you know you were weak and you were defenseless, and but the audience was then there for you, like you had no backup, you know, and just to have such pure integrity in the form 
of the piece that actually echoes like the message and the medium, the messages in the medium. It was really sad. I think it was just brilliant. And, um, uh, I wasn't sitting through this time, but, um, was it your piano player that was carried out on the journey? Yeah. 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 And so he was the last musician to leave. So he'd been through most of the show with me. Um, he'd taken two hours break one hour break at one point another hour break at another point but i i basically sang through the entire i i never took a break i just went to the bathroom a few times but um and those were during like trumpet solos or something like that so i never I really just went non-stop for 24 hours but everyone else you know had breaks but they all just kind of kept with us anyways were there any snafus that uh that i mean it was was it as seamless as it appears to be Film? There was a, there was snafus all the way through it. I mean, it's like it's what I say in the Walt Whitman decade. You know, it's I'm not a polished show girl, you know, um, or a polished show comma girl, you know. Um, so uh, I'm offering up, you know, um, not smooth. I'm offering up rough new prizes. So there was snafus. How do you how do you polish 24 hours of material? Um, so. And but that wasn't the point. The point was kind of to fall apart and allow the chaos to change the show. And um, yeah, it's incorporating. I call it incorporating the calamity. You know, so um, Trump becomes our president, and you just you got to incorporate the calamity of what our lives is, and then make something out of it. So so things fell, things broke. A machine would come out with some new costume piece that I'd never worn and put it on my head that he'd just made backstage. You know, it was like constant. There was lots of, you know, spontaneity. So there was not a review of each costume for each decade. He was like surprising machine was like, I mean, I'd worn everything at that point, but he always surprises me. He never stops working every show he would make. Um, he came on the road with us and he would make new things. Um, while I was performing and, and then put it on the next day or that day in the performance, you know, just walk out and put something on me. It's amazing to see how um, unprecious machine is with the costumes. I mean, they're just these incredible works of art and it's just, you know, he just throws them around and something falls apart and he pulls out a glue gun or, you know, duct tape. Uh, the <laughs> first costume, the Yankee doodle costume, the hoop skirt is made up of banners that he found on the street from a used car lot right and that was how many years ago and it's it's the same you know the banners are all tattered and like they're like three left from 2010 i think and and it's the very much like the theater of the absurd almost and and you describe yourself as a fool (laughs) and that you like to be a fool but you've managed to find this menagerie of fools uh (laughs) to go along with you (laughs) and uh and it's like this family it's really beautiful um so i want to not hog their attention i want to offer anyone to ask a question yes right there uh i was talking to um somebody i was that yeah we were talking about um how my voice i got very nasally you can hear it in the show because the only way i could produce sound is if i pushed it through my nose um, at a certain point I, you know, I probably had a range of two and, um, uh, not octaves, but notes <laughs> and, you know, the, the chords swelled up and it became increasingly difficult to sing, but I had done a 12 hour, we marathon trained it 
So we did three hour shows, six hour shows, a 12 hour show. I had never performed more than 12 hour show, a 12 hour show before we did the 24 hour one. So after the 12 hour one, I thought, okay, I think I have another six hours in me, but I wasn't really sure after that. So there was this kind of nervousness that I might um, not be able to do it. And my voice teacher had said, if you know, at a certain point you could have a vocal hemorrhage. And so you need to like, we need to, like think about this and you know prepare prepare and look for signs of that and blah 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 so um, what were you drinking just drinking uh, a lot of water and then she would literally she would she would crawl under the stage and there was a little trap door and she'd be like drink water drink water (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> like, I kept forgetting to drink water. And then, um, and I also didn't want to pee a lot. So I was like trying not to uh, drink a lot of water. And I drank a lot of blueberry soup, um, which I guess um, marathon uh, bicyclists uh, drink when they're going over the Alps or whatever, um, because it gives you a lot of energy. Um, but it also makes you really gassy. And <laughs> so I was like very bloated <laughs> through the entire experience. Uh, I don't, it was exhausting, but that it was, that was the point was to, it, it, it it's performance art. So the point was to fall apart. I wasn't trying not to, but we did work on a lot of vocal things so that I would have less of an attack as I sang and my muscle memory, um, before studying with Barbara was that I would go, ah, in order to start things. And, and instead it was like, ah, it's just like easing up on the attack of a line, um, which actually makes it sound better too. So, um, so, but those little things like that, sometimes I, I, you know, you'll see me go like this and it's just cause I'm trying to open up my rib cage, but it makes me look like I'm doing Liza Minnelli or something, but I'm just really trying to open up the rib cage so I can get breath so that I can support the voice. There's a lot of that kind of singing like, <laughs> which I, I get embarrassed looking at it, but it did help me get the sound up and over and, you know, up here instead of, um, instead of in my throat. I was thinking about when, when the film ended, I was thinking about you walking out of there or stumbling out of there into a car or whatever. And what your next few days looked like. I mean, did you just, lie down and not get up for some days i fell asleep at the at the table yeah eating um right after yeah and then we went to bed and um my husband took me to bed and then and uh we woke up about four hours later we couldn't stop talking because you know we couldn't get back to sleep because we were jazzed but then we slept for a really long time (laughs) okay yeah yeah. I, I will say like some of this stuff is, I think, maybe kind of interesting. But what one one of the wonderful things about the film, I think, is that they they um, this is why it's both uh, to me is why it's hybrid. It's art and documentary because it's um, because they show rather than tell. So everything I just said is shown in the film. If you watch it again, you'll see in very subtle ways. All of these things are shown. The relationship with the audience and how they fatigue is shown. And um, my voice, you hear it throughout the experience. So I don't really have to actually talk about how my voice felt um, because you you experience it, which I find very um, sophisticated filmmaking. Verite. You get to actually experience, be in the room. Yeah. You're invited into the room. Um, yeah, I mean, Ellen and team... Uh, 
captured it beautifully so that there really is this feeling of immediacy. You know, that close-up of your face is just, I, I kept sitting there wondering, how, how did they get this shot without interfering with the audience? Um, which I don't know if you have insight on that, but the shot, was it in rehearsal that she got managed to get so right up on your face or was she just shooting with a super long lens? She, yeah, I, I, I mean, there was so many different ways that they, she did it, but I mean, I do have a memory of her on the ground, like, like in that very awkward position, just like pointing and totally still and clear. And, um, you know, just, she found some beautiful shot and, it was through some light bulb and, <laughs> yeah. you know, she just was able to capture me in a way that, yeah, yeah. We, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure. We, they did build little platforms in the audience um, uh, That's probably what, yeah. that she, she used, um, that Bobby Bukowski used. Uh, yeah. I see another hand up. I want to make sure you get your question in right there. If you would like to pay for an audio album, I would like to talk to you after. Uh, we have all the recordings, and it's just about mixing and mastering and putting it out. And, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's gorgeous. He did a great job. Milos Zivkovic. Is your regular mixer? mixer? Well, he, he mixed Ronstadt, or Ronstadt film oh, as well. Perfect. Do you have a favorite moment, you, each of you, that you just, that when you think of the film, you're like, I love this moment? I have a lot of favorite moments. So many. One one that's just coming to mind is uh, after Taylor does that tour de force showstopper number soliloquy from um, Carousel, and we cut to him just walking, walking across the room, and just the cut, the great cut, Brian, uh, like my, nailed it, Japanese nailed uh, it. <laughs> bathing suit. And lately, you know, I mean, at different at different times, different different moments touch me more but lately i find myself just going over in my head um that song danny at the end which i just find such just pure raw feeling you know we used to we used to come into the editing room um brian rob and i um ask each other which song which song we couldn't get out of our head in the shower that morning oh yeah exactly yeah. and that you know that changed over time but danny's the one that's been haunting oh. me lately and and Jeffrey, did you hands on edit next to Brian, or like, is how did that work? No, um, at, at the beginning because we had such a tight schedule, I just took some see some sequences. I mean, I think basically I I started at the end and Brian started at the beginning. We sort of met somewhere, um, and then we both worked on each other's sequences. Um, yeah, from from the rough cut on, we were the three of us were in the room. For a long time together, really. Yeah, in Pasadena, yeah. I came to learn. Right here in our town. Yes, last question. The they question still make DVDs? An extended <laughs> version. <laughs> an extended version or, or, or extras. There's no DVDs anymore, right? Uh, no plans yet, but, you know, there's a lot of great material. There's no, there's no plan yet. Um, but I, I, I like the idea of a, of a 24-hour installation. I think it would have to be something you could walk in and out of. I don't think, I don't think you could you could sit in front of a movie for twenty four hours. Well, yeah, I don't think you could sit in front of an Andy Warhol movie for twenty four hours. Um, I would choose Taylor Mac over. Yeah, twenty four yeah. hours. 
It's yeah, just it such a ne- different. Yeah, it was never intended to be a twenty-four hour film experience. Part of what m- kept the audience going for twenty-four hours is that I could respond to them in the room and change depending. If someone was sleeping right there, I could be like, everyone, we're going to sing this song like a lullaby for this person right here. And then everyone would sing, you know, the people would sing along the chorus to the lullaby to the person who's sleeping. So then that enlivens everyone. And then suddenly everyone's more awake except for the person who's sleeping. So it's just a little, like that's the kind of thing you couldn't do in a, in a 24 hour film. And so when I was watching all the footage that we had, the 500 hours of footage, I was thinking, Oh God, (laughs) there's so much that I wouldn't want an audience to see, um, you know, because it wasn't intended for a camera. Um, so I think one of the great things about the film is like, it feels like everything that's in the film is intentional and beautiful and, and works. So, um, I like that. So I'm with you. We need to see the outtakes. Um, what I what I just want to end with is congratulating all of you. You know, you you have stated before, and you have I'm sure have as well in your work that um, you know your mission is to fight conformity and categorization. And I feel like this work does all of that for film and for documentary, and it moves the form forward in a beautiful way. And it uh, it really celebrates uh, queer history within our history of that it it makes a place and it takes a lot of work that we didn't have a place in and makes gives us a place and so that's why i had to wear my gold boots and my gold shirt today couldn't come without some glitter for machine and the gang so thank you all so much for coming to the dga thank Thank you thanks for having us thanks for listening to another dga q a The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. 